Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Toward the end of the 1980s, and right at the dawn of the 1990s, glam metal slash hair metal had reached its apotheosis on the American rock scene. Both rock radio and MTV were saturated with the likes of Motley Crue, Poison, Warrant, Winger, Whitesnake, Skid Row, and frankly, even Guns N' Roses, who were just a dirtier, angrier version of the form. Yes, both yours truly curmudgeons are old enough to remember the days of 1980s rock radio when the only respite from the glam metal onslaught were brief interjections of U2, REM, and occasionally The Cure. It's a big reason why, starting in 1987, young listeners like us, especially me, gravitated toward the classic rock sound of the, from the 1960s and 70s. Forget the hairspray and spandex. Bring us the Who, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, the Doors, etc. Yeah, that felt like real authentic rock and roll to us, even to some kids in their early teens in the late 1980s. People, especially younger generation rock music fans, have to understand that wide swaths, even millions of teenagers during the end of the 1980s had no clue about the indie alternative underground that was bubbling underneath the surface. We had no idea about the existence of bands such as Sonic Youth, The Pixies, or The Replacements. This was way before the internet. Commercial radio and MTV were pretty much our only outlets back then. That's why it was such a breath of fresh air when, right between the apex of glam metal and the imminent mainstream explosion of that indie alternative movement, when the Black Crows emerged in 1990. They were the one mainstream rock band that stood for the classic rock values of the 1960s and 70s without slavishly copying their influences. They had the swagger, the look, the chops, the riffs, the sound that was unlike anyone else at the time, and they had a riveting frontman and lead singer in Chris Robinson who owned one of the most authentically soulful voices rock had seen in quite a long time. Their debut album, Shake Your Moneymaker, was a multi-platinum success, elevating them to the big time. And after Nirvana ushered in the grunge-slash-alternative era, and thereby ushering in the fourth golden age of rock, 
The Black Crows stood their ground with 1992's The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, a Southern rock masterpiece that seemed bigger than life, unabashedly flaunting rock's deep-rooted connection to black R&B and soul music while racking up more hit singles. They seemed destined for all-time great status. When the middle of the decade rolled around, the Black Crows wisely aligned themselves with the burgeoning neo-hippie jam band movement characterized by bands such as Fish, the Dave Matthews Band, and Blues Traveler. Yet, their popularity started to wane and their rock radio presence dissipated. They went from being the natural successors to the Rolling Stones to being a smallish cult band with a hardcore following that while never again reaching the heights they reached in the early 1990s, still managed to pull in people at two to 3,000 capacity venues. But they should have been bigger. They had iconic status in their hands and let it slip away. What happened to them is a classic case of a great rock band that did themselves in due to interband and especially fraternal conflict drug abuse, jealousy, egos, and simply, and tragically, refusing to follow their musical strengths. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report as we give you an examination of the Black Crows. Quote, if I was interested in perfection, I would have been an architect. Rock and roll is not perfect. The way everyone plays is the way they are. Uh, so says Chris Robinson to a reporter from the San Diego Union Tribune last summer mm-hmm. in a newspaper article in August. That sounds about right when we're talking about the Black Crows, doesn't it, Arturo? Yeah, it does. And here's another aspect of the Black Crows. Uh, Black Crows drummer Steve Gorman, who now is not with them anymore, but he does a podcast. And uh, he published in his memoir a couple of years ago called Hard to Handle. It's about his time with the Black Crows. And there's a great story in there. He and Chris Robinson, the lead singer of the band, were having a bit of a debate slash discussion about being more in touch with Black Crows fans and what Black Crows fans want and expect of the band. And basically, Chris Robinson accused uh, Gorman of not being of not knowing or not being in touch with what Black Crows fans want. And, and Gorman went back at him like, Chris, are you kidding me? Dude, you spend more money on marijuana in one year than uh, and, and then, than most of our fans make in their salary during the year. Right. And Chris Robinson says, no, I don't. And Gorman says, OK, Chris, how much on pot do you spend every year? Robinson says, oh, about 100 grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, de- definitely, definitely not perfect. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know what else is hard to handle, by the way, don't you? What? The trip over into the parallel universe. Oh, good good, good segue. That That's hard to handle. But alas, here we are over in the parallel universe. We have crossed over into through that rip in the space-time continuum. And over here, uh, we like to say that blue is green and tall is short and so on. Uh, and that rock and roll is still the predominant music that dominates the world. It's predominant because it dominates man. Uh, it, I'm telling you, it's it's large, it's massive, it's on the billboards, it's in the arenas, it's in the stadiums. 
Uh, you know, Taylor Swift got to give her respect. You know, she's not she's she's not as bad as I once thought. But at the same time, uh, over here, she she would not be playing Giant Stadium. Uh, it would be uh, it would be some of the bands that we discuss during this segment. Uh, Parallel Universe is where we look at new and newish albums by artists we think are cool and uh, artists that we think that you should be uh, attuned to. And so uh, we're going to start this Arturo uh, talking about a, a very, very interesting Mexican band that has one of the better albums either of us has heard this year. Correct, Arturo? Yeah. yeah. Uh, hailing from Mexico City, alternative rock band Laurel meets the obsolete. Just recently released their sixth album, uh, Datura, D-A-T-U-R-A. Now, they've been around for about a decade. And they started out as a shoegazer band. But what separated them from the usual mill of shoegaze bands was uh, when, you know, the usual mill of shoegaze bands with their wussy, woo-woo vocals and ethereal guitars in the clouds nothingness. What these guys had, well, guy and girl, is the level of grit and backbone that their music had. In their previous album, 2019's De Facto, they started to strip away the shoegazer elements of their sound. For this new record, you just cannot call Laurel Meets the Obsolete a shoegazer band anymore. What you now have is spooky, intense, aggressive art rock with hints of industrial and grunge made all the more bracing by unpredictable rhythmic shifts. They never lose their knack for engaging melodies and guitar hooks, though, that really counteract or better yet complement the abrasive, almost post-punk mood of the music. It's a pretty short record that packs quite a bit of punch in eight songs. Recommended tracks are the opening title track, Dinamo, and, well, the entire second half of the album. Uh, It's a terrific outing from a band that has thoroughly reinvented itself as of now, it is my number three album of the year. Chris? Yeah, it's pretty high up there for me, too. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the second half of the record. I agree with that. Very, very strong. It's an eight song record. And the last four songs are all tremendous. And, you know, they kind yeah. of they kind of hit this unique rhythmic spot. And essentially what I can use to describe this album is take Nirvana's Endless Nameless i.e. the hidden track from nevermind and just replace the guitars with electronics and it's got that kind of intensity and that kind of beat Uh, clearly clearly david grohl is a is an influence on their their percussion uh and and drumming uh, and uh cobain and obviously you know kevin shields and uh guitarists like that are big influences i'd like to say martin gore in terms of his songwriting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, I, I think I, there's some Depeche mode in there for sure. There is some, yeah. They, like I said, the shoegazer is gone. They kind of stripped yeah. it away. Man. Yeah. The yeah. shoegazer, you know, that, you know, uh, down with the, uh, Jesus and Mary chain and up with, uh, Nirvana, I guess. Yeah. And so now, uh, it's been a little bit of a mild upset here. Uh, uh Arturo, uh, it took until mid June of 2023 to get our very first King gizzard and the lizard wizard album. Uh, of the year uh <laughs> yeah this this coming on the uh the heels of five real albums one remix album and one little ep last yeah. year uh right. it all in 2022 
When last uh, we encountered King Gizzard, uh, they were releasing three albums within a month of each other, uh, about about six weeks. And so they're uh, two of them are inessential. Uh, Laminated denim and changes are just they're either uh, boring or sloppy or both. Uh, leftovers, but, what they are. They're basically the leftovers from their jam sessions. Yeah, uh, one one of them might as well just be made in Timeland Part Two, uh, yeah. literally, and but yeah. is is way less boring. Or is way more boring than right. made in timeline, and so. Uh, but the one that was great, uh, one of the has, best albums of the year. <laughs> yeah, the one that was great was was my number three, I think, if I remember correctly, on my uh, year end list. My and, number three as well. Yeah, and uh, I think it was number three. It was either three or two, something like that. But anyway, it had one of my favorite uh, album titles of all time: Ice, Death, Planets, Lungs, Mushrooms, and Lava. <laughs> now, what what do you think they sang about on that record? Uh, yeah, and so so that's the last time that we heard from them. They were releasing those three records and that uh, incredible uh, jam record. Well, uh, now here, I'm excited for a couple reasons uh, for this new record, which I'm going to say the full title uh, of this record uh, now, just just because uh, it deserves its own. Uh, little uh, section here. Drum roll, please. Petro Dragonic Apocalypse or Dawn of Eternal Night and Annihilation of Planet Earth and the Beginning of Merciless Damnation. <laughs> now, now that's my kind of album title. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to run a popular jam band or jamish band called King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and you're going to be as prolific as this band is, it's also pretty much mandated that they once in a while need to make a record about either gizzards, lizards, or wizards. Well, <laughs> the band comes through this time out with an album largely about, yep, a giant witchcraft-born demon lizard. <laughs> and uh, in terms of the sound, I mean, this band goes all over the place. They're one of the more impressive bands in the world in terms of, I think it just in terms of just talent, I mean, this is one of the more talented bands in the world because they can just kind of wake up one day and say, hey, we're going to go down to the studio and we're going to do some jams. Oh, and by the way, let's do another speed metal record, even though, <laughs> you know, so they can go from uh, giving reverence to Santana and Frank Zappa and, and other uh, adventurers of the late 60s to now giving reverence to Metallica, Motorhead and Mastodon and not necessarily in that order. Right. Uh, and so this is a spiritual cousin, if not a sequel to 2019's masterpiece, Infest the Rat's Nest. Uh, to which, this day, I still think it's their very best album. Yes, it's 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 one of their two or three best records uh, for sure. And uh, this may actually you can make the argument uh, that this is, well, it's certainly one of the two best since then. But uh, in terms of the quality of the music, this is really, really, really strong. Again, so yes, they are uh, dabbling in, uh, they are dabbling again in speed metal. And uh, once again, it is aggressive as hell. Uh, Stu McKenzie makes a, a frighteningly, con he does a convincing impression of James Hetfield. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure how, but it, but it does, <laughs> it does work. And so the first two songs, you get a reasonable and a reasonably coherent fantasy narrative where uh, man's love of gasoline-powered fast cars brings forth the wrath of God in the form of a badass apocalyptic tornado. <laughs> H hence the second song, Supercell, 
which rocks yeah. balls and is probably the best piece of music on the record. And then uh, this lyric from track four called Witchcraft basically gives us the whole gloriously dumb rest of the story. Quote, I am Beowulf. I am cat black. Knock the candle from the scripture stack. I bring justice at moment right. Gila monster set alight. Unleash a reptile thinking in terms of only lizard brain and be lucky enough and be not lucky enough to make any mistakes again. Like a grenade in a fist, the air ignites a bloody mist. Moon cycle shifting, demon lifting, Beowulf grifting ritualist. Alas, the cat disrupts the prayer and turns it on meekest there. The tiny creature, a harmless skink, transforms into a mythic king. Witchcraft. You could tell these guys were cracking up while they were writing these lyrics. Yeah, I mean, this is just... They had to be. Yeah, this this is just, yeah, it's completely absurd. And so, yes, it starts off in the first two songs, you think they're, they're going into this sort of the profound existential crisis territory, you know, climate change inspired that they were doing in uh, uh, Infest the, rat, uh, the Rat's Nest, see uh, the song Planet B. Uh, they they were very sort of profound and 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 almost uh, what what what's the word I'm looking for almost wistful on that record yeah. in terms of the theme. Well, yeah. here it starts out that way and then it just turns into a big dumb Godzilla movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and not and not only and not only a uh, uh, you know basically a lizard rising from the pollution that is Godzilla, but <laughs> they, they take it a step further and it is born by witches, man. <laughs> that's that that is just fan fucking tastic ecological so. witches environmentally friendly witches chris here again we usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on facebook well we're picking up our efforts there no people just as passionate as us about rock and roll invite them to join in the fun you don't actually need our permission to do so also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Now, Arturo, what exactly did the Black Crows mean for rock and roll when they first hit the scene in uh, roughly 1990? Uh, well, uh, let the Crows, the, the brothers Robinson, Chris and Rich, uh, talk a little bit about this themselves, uh, quoting from a article that david frick wrote about them in a uh, may 1991 rolling stone article uh so first uh, so rich uh, starts this he says quote i think we serve the same purpose the stones did 20 years ago or aerosmith did 15 years ago quote just to slap you in the face and say shut the fuck up and listen and then chris chimes in quote how many new rock stars have come around that have anything to say at all rails chris guys where you even want to know what they were thinking are they thinking where did it go astray and leaves it at that end quote yeah chris robinson never never lacked for uh confidence did he <laughs> no 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 he did not and so that is the kind of swagger 
that these guys brought uh, to rock and roll. The only band that was even close to what the the kind of what they were offering to at that time was probably Guns N' Roses. And yeah. so, but even even with uh, the GNR at the height of its powers, the Crows were still a, a breath of fresh air when they hit. Uh, you know, especially coming at the time that they did, i.e., off of the '80s. Correct. Right. Exactly. The core of the Black Crows has always been, as you mentioned, Chris, the Robinson brothers. Older brother Chris on vocals, younger brother Rich on guitar. They grew up in Marietta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta in Cobb County. As teenagers in 1984, they formed a band called Mr. Crow's Garden, named after the Leonard Leslie Brooks children's book, Johnny Crow's Garden. Oddly enough, when they started out, they were a very REM-influenced jangle pop band with roots in 1960s psychedelic pop. They later, they later stretched out into heavier 1970s-style blues rock. They did a demo for AM Records in 1987, and the label offered them a quote-unquote demo deal, basically a low-cost commitment that amounted to a let's-see-what-you-got-before-we-give-you-a-real-deal deal. deal. <laughs> uh, by this time, Steve Gorman joined the band on drums. The REM connection didn't end there. Jefferson Holt, REM's manager at the time, had his own label called Dog Gone and offered Mr. Crow's Garden a straight-up conventional record deal. The band, of course, declined. By 1988, they had become a five-piece band with Johnny Colt on bass and Jeff Cease on lead guitar, and they toured up and down the East Coast. They met producer George Draculius in 1989, who convinced them to sign with Rick Rubin's Deaf American Records that year, the label home of Danzig Slayer and the American home of the Jesus and Mary chain. By yep. this time, they had uh, permanently changed their name to The Black Crows. Draculius produced their first album, uh, Shake Your Moneymaker, which came out in early 1990. They were getting a great word-of-mouth reputation as a terrific live band, but the album didn't really take off until the fall of 1990 when their cover of Otis Redding's Hard to Handle became a massive radio hit, going as far as the top 30 in the Billboard pop chart. They followed that up with the gorgeous classic ballad She Talks to Angels, which also hit the Billboard top 30. The album would go on to sell more than 5 million copies in the U.S. alone, making the Black Crows huge stars. Now, was the album as good as its sales indicate? This is a personal one for me because this was absolutely one of the formative albums of my teenage years. Rock music was one of my salvations in my youth, but I was very disaffected by modern rock radio at the time. Hmm. I just couldn't identify with the spandex makeup and hairspray bullshit of glam metal, nor their cheesy sexist songs. Until Nirvana blew up and blew everyone's mind in the fall of 1991, I and you, Chris, like millions of music lovers of our age at the time, we had no idea about the existence of an underground alternative music scene. What I got from commercial rock radio was all I got. I didn't even have cable TV in my home, so there was no MTV for me either. I still listened to modern rock radio, but mainly it was in the hope of catching any airings of U2 or R.E.M., the only modern rock bands at the time that I liked, and it was in the greater hope that something good would emerge. Otherwise, I just gorged on classic rock of the 1960s and 70s. 
So when the Black Crows came on, it felt like salvation. Finally, a band not tethered to glam metal cliche, a genuine, authentic, soulful, no bullshit rock and roll band that wouldn't sound out of place in my personal pantheon of classic rock favorites. As for the Black Crows themselves, especially on this debut album, you can hear the influences. You can hear the Rolling Stones. You can hear a bit of 1970s Aerosmith, i.e. back when Aerosmith were good. You can hear a bit of early Rod Stewart when he was in the faces. You can especially hear the vocal influence of Steve Marriott during his humble pie period. What made the Black Crows special is that they didn't just copy and reproduce their influences. They had their own style. They had their own stamp on this classic sound that was as distinctive as the bands that influenced them. They presented classic rock values to a younger generation with Gen X attitude, stomping riffs, and startlingly great songwriting. They, along with U2 and R.E.M., instantly became my pre-16-year-old modern rock trio of favorites. Chris? Yeah, that was back, uh, like, 1990. It was still uh, a truage that kick-ass rock and roll bands will never go out of style. Yeah. And and I think that that's where the Crows uh, came in. And it made no sense at the time because I remember you, you didn't have MTV that's basically that was my oxygen i loved i I watched way too much mtv during that era and so the fact that hard to handle went into heavy 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 rotation in the fall of basically i think it was the fall Fall of 90 fall of 90 yeah and then early 91 the same thing happened as she talks to angels that went into even greater rotation on on mtv it was it was that there was that losing my religion just nonstop. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and to both hit at the same time, and it that this is in the middle of. Remember, Poison is still big at this time. Uh, you know, like the Bell Biv DeVoe, Teddy Riley stuff is starting to blow yeah. up at that point. Uh, and sort of pop pop rap is is starting to come up. Remember, MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice were the were yeah. the, two, the two biggest artists of 1990. And so, for the Black Crows of all bands to land themselves on MTV, that's a pretty impressive accomplishment. And again, it's just a testament to, at least back then, kick-ass rock and roll and meaningful rock and roll mean something. Now, obviously, a year later, Nirvana took that and went like times 20 with it uh, in yeah. terms of the sensation uh, they became. And so, yeah, I agree with them. And I, it, it is funny that they tried to be uh, a more of a modern rock band before somebody figured out that, you know, Chris Robinson's really damn good when he does Humble Pie uh covers in concert or faces covers in yeah. concert so why don't we just go in that direction because you know that that style uh uh fits uh chris robinson like a glove and so what you had is you had chris robinson as a vocalist who had you know true soul and a true depth but also was mining in the same territory as the rod stewart's as the steve marriott's uh maybe even a little bit of van morrison although that might be a stretch uh, otis redding yeah otis redding yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Otis Redding is obviously a big influence uh, on uh, on Robinson. Uh, but then you have Rich Robinson, who, you know, as a songwriter and as a rhythm guitarist, had a very distinct style. So you have a very original, very talented uh, natural music, you know, natural songwriter. Uh, and also, you know, Robinson is a very talented lyricist. But and so you have a classic 
uh, well-worn vocal style uh, and you mix it with a very unique blend of musical uh, influences and and just talents and you yeah. come up with just a, just an extraordinarily original it it was weird it was like they're a throwback but they're like the most startlingly original throwback imaginable right yeah like i said they it, yeah you can hear their influences but they're not regurgitating their influence no not, not, not at all and presented it in a fresh new package yeah it it, it is not rod stewart karaoke yeah, uh, that that is one thing that you can say uh, you can say for sure. And so, you know, it, are, are we officially talking about Shake Your Moneymaker here? We're, uh, we are talking about Shake Your We're not we're not in Southern Harmony yet. That's coming okay. up very soon, though. OK, so uh, to talk about Shake Your Moneymaker a little bit. Uh, awesome album. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of Twice as Hard. Uh, yeah. That that is one of the best uh, album openers, certainly of the era, and one of the best yeah. of all time. Uh, yeah. Just really, really killer. They sound like they're having so much fun uh, making yeah. that record. There's an energy. Their first the album. It's yeah. their first album. Yeah. I mean, there's just an energy. There's a pervasive aliveness to that record. Yeah. Uh, and it's not a restrained record at all. Like you know, like like uh, seeing things for the first time is is kind of like it's almost like their take on joe cocker's uh version of with a little help from my friends yeah but yeah. it but it's done with so much panache and so right. much flavor that you just you, you just have to love it and then like we said you know she talks to angels which i'm never sure exactly what that song is supposed to be about it's i'm i'm in love with a weird girl uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I i think uh you know you know the first line makes you think it's another heroin dirge but nope, it's right. just I'm in love with a weird girl. And so there's just so much energy to that. Obviously, the cover of Hard to Handle is right. just is just wonderful. And I actually prefer it to the original. And it, a lot of that has to do with Gorman's drumming on that. Yeah. It's just that yeah, he kills a, it. Yeah. yeah, there's just an ener again, just energy. There's a thrilling uh, nature to it. And, you know, it's not it's not Southern Harmony, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, but it's on its own. It's just a, a really just awesome, uh, awesomely powerful rock and roll record that just like song after song, like Jealous Again is another mm -hmm. killer on that. And, you know, that's more sort of Almany. Oh, speaking of the Almonds, it's worth mentioning that the organist and keyboardist in the band for that first record is Chuck Lavelle. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Chuck Lavelle, as in Dwayne Almond's replacement in the Almond Brothers. Right. Uh, who is uh, the the pianist? Uh, you know, everybody knows Jessica. He's the pianist. Wait, 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 wait. Chuck Lavelle did not replace Dwayne. Dwayne was a guitar player. I know. Well, okay. Now you're being all technical. No, what what it is is they made the decision not to go with the two lead guitar thing. Right. Okay. And yeah, and yeah. so Lavelle came in, and so what it what it is is he had his own flavor with his piano. Like awesome right. piano solo on Jessica and, right. and th those types of things. So there you go, motherfucker. I, I did <laughs> not get that wrong. But but anyway, uh, you, you know, you got something special when you get Chuck Lavelle to be your organist and key and, and, and keyboardist for your for your debut record. Nobody's ever heard of you. But Chuck Lavelle, uh, you got you got his uh, you got his endorsement. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the next album the Black Crows did. The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. Now, we talked about this album at length in the 1992 episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series. We did. Basically, the Black Crows released their follow-up to Shake Your Moneymaker in the spring of 1992. 
the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. And on this album, they took their bombastic take on 1970s blues rock and augmented it with Southern soul, R&B, and gospel in order to produce a snarling, majestically powerful piece of epic Southern rock. It was their only album to ever hit number one on the Billboard Albums chart. While it didn't have any top 30 pop chart hits, there were some all-time classic songs, Remedy, Thorn in My Pride, and Sting Me, that all hit number one on Billboard's modern rock chart. Uh, there were some lineup changes as well. Mark Ford replaced Jeff Cease on lead guitar, and the band added a full-time keyboard player in Eddie Harsh. This would become known as the vintage classic Black Crows lineup for the next several years. If you really want to hear us wax rhapsodically about this record, please go listen to our 1992 episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series. Needless to say, it's an album that has to be heard to be believed. It's on my list of 500 greatest albums ever. And for my money, one of the three best Southern rock albums ever made. Chris? Yeah, I would say it's on the tail end of my uh, all-time greatest records, uh, too. It's a, a personal favorite of mine, you know, like junior year of, of high school. The second half yeah. of junior year of high school was all sure. about this record. And yeah. uh, Remedy is up there in the the uh, the big leagues with Freebird as a song yeah. that is an event every time I hear it. You know, yeah. if I'm driving around and I'm listening to the local uh, rock station and that comes on, it's an yeah. event every single time yeah. it's just it's just that good a song it's got that much flavor uh to it yeah. and the thing about this record is this does have some restraint this does have some refinement uh and that there's a depth to uh the recording and the arrangements to it that you didn't quite get on shake your moneymaker like a song like thorn in my pride which just has this just real this this vibe it almost a poignancy to 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 the vibe with the, the mm. like you said, the gospel piano and yeah. the, uh, the 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 backing vocalists at the end, this so, so almost like going to going to church piece at, yeah. at, at the end of that. I mean, that that's just beautiful. And uh, there's the the cover of "Time Will Tell" by Marley, which is a neat touch to end uh, the record with. Yeah. And then you know you just get some just you know, classic songs, uh, other classic songs. You know, uh, uh, "Hotel Illness." and uh, my morning song which i've always loved yeah. uh and uh sometimes salvation is, yeah. is, a, is a lot of fun so it's just a really strong record mark ford is a tremendous lead guitar player uh yeah. so th th that was a step up from uh from the first record uh so you know ford over the next three records like his lead work and that's the thing that people need to know that you know rich robinson is the famous one but he's the, he's the rhythm guitarist yeah and occasionally he's kind of like the keith richards he was an occasional lead player up until like you know halfway through and then you know he kind of just started to step up but at this point he's the riffs guy and obviously yeah. awesome riffs guy but the the lead work on this record is mostly from mark ford and it's a really special uh, special work on that so uh not not too many bad things to say uh to say about this record at all uh there is there are no bad things to say about about this record and it i can see where you're you're coming from when you call it one of the three best southern rock records because it's their spin it's a very unique it's 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 what the black crows are known for and so you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the episode, but when you get to the 
to the albums that they did after they reunited or they 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 sort of refocused there about 15 years ago now uh they you say oh they sound like the black crows why because of the template that they created on this record southern harmony and musical companion and so so that's a pretty special thing to say on this episode we gave a thorough examination of the career of the black crows for the next episode we're going to give you the first installment of our next mammoth series. We've done the first golden age of rock, a two-parter that covered the 1950s rock and roll explosion. We've done the fourth golden age of rock, an epic nine-parter that reviewed rock's last period of relevant brilliance that spanned most of the 1990s. That leaves us with a gap of two more golden ages, eh? Well, in two weeks, we are putting out the first of a nine-part series, spread apart intermittently with other episodes in between, called The Second Golden Age of Rock. This is the period from the mid-1960s to the very early 1970s when everything, and I mean everything, changed for the world on a cultural level. We're obviously focusing on the music, but those changes in music at the time echoed, or perhaps even foreshadowed, the sweeping cultural changes that the world saw in film, art, fashion, politics, and even technology. Our maiden voyage will bring us to 1964, where the explosion of Beatlemania portended the arrival of British rock music as an international pop cultural force the rise of Bob Dylan and socially conscious music, the mainstreaming of the sweet R&B sounds of Motown into the American consciousness, and, thanks to the Beach Boys, the solidification of surf rock as an American musical institution. Oh yeah, and we'll also talk about those four scruffy kids from Liverpool, England. Join us next time for... The Second Golden Age of Rock, Part 1, 1964. So, when the Black Crow's third album, Amorica, came out in 1994, it came with some controversy. The album cover was a picture hmm. taken from a 1976 issue of Penthouse magazine, that of a woman's crotch wearing a thong designed after the U.S. flag. Complete with no, bush on the sides. I know. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the most tasteful or progressively minded idea for an album cover. And it cost the band as many commercial retailers refused to carry the record. They had to change it and release another version with the album cover where, where like it's all black and you just see the thong. Right. Anyway, uh, it went only as high as number 11 on the Billboard album chart. As for the music itself, I've always had an up-down-up relationship with it. At the time of its release, I loved it. I thought it was an expansion of Southern Harmony's gospel soul rock that saw the band experiment with Latin music and funk. Then I fell out of love with the record because I thought the songwriting dragged in some spots. Now I think it's terrific again. And some of those songs that I thought sucked were actually acquired taste tracks for me. Chris? Yeah, same here. Uh, this is a very, very underrated record. Uh, so they kind of go from sounding effortless on Southern yeah. Harmony 
to hear they are pumping up some effort, there is an effort to sort of uh, segue and experiment. And so you do get uh, some uh, some experiments with Latin rhythms and you do get some uh, some cheeky, almost British or uh, early Britpop uh, little uh, rhythms like you get on stuff like P25 London. Yeah. Right. And uh, or or like a conspiracy, which is very sort of Wawa uh, uh, right. uh, driven, and so you do get uh, some of that. But to me, most of it works. Uh, I, me personally, I love Wiser Time. Oh uh, yeah, I mean it's just a tremendous song. It's it's just a great piece of songwriting. It has the the soul from those first two records, but it also has a sunnier sheen uh, yeah. to it. And so it it and not only that, but just really, really pretty harmony and some some really terrific pedal steel work from uh, Rich Robinson uh, in the back on that. And then also, obviously, uh, you know, Gorman, who, he, you know, I guess you can say he wasn't the technically greatest drummer, but boy, could he hit the shit out of the kit. Yeah, you know? he, he had that mud, mud stomp level drumming. And so you yeah. get you, know, you get that. And then I'm also a big fan of the album closer descending. Oh, beautiful! Uh, which song. Just, just really, really pretty, uh, and it's you know, it's a good, not necessarily breakup song, but it's just kind of like, uh, oh, uh, oh, baby, the uh, we're far enough into this relationship where the magic that I bring is gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, today, yeah. Hey, hey, girl, I'm descending again, and <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my allure, and yeah. but it's just really gorgeous, you know, this these pian- piano intro and outro, uh, slide guitar. Uh, acoustic slide guitar which is just just really pretty it's it's one of their prettier songs and uh it's it's so it's so plaintive and so uh simple that it it's almost uh you know it's almost what, what would you say it almost like soaring it's like sure yeah it, it it's it soars in its plaintiveness if that yeah. makes any sense yeah well, it, it's it's a beautiful love it's a ballad it's, it's a breakup ballad it's and it's one of the very i think one of the very best songs in their entire in their entire repertoire yeah so, anyway. no, yeah ab- absolutely so so again uh underrated record yeah n- not as good as the first two uh it's a little bit it's chancier it, it is a little bit inconsistent the middle of the record like uh, you know like I, I mentioned p25 london both that and ballad and urgency kind of represents a little dip a little yeah. lull uh, uh yeah. in this album but overall it's still somewhere between three and a half and four stars, maybe, maybe closer to 4.25. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, in the aftermath of America, knowing that they were commercially slipping, they made a decision that seemed wise at the time. They aligned themselves with the neo hippie jam band movement in rock that was taking off in popularity at the time. Thanks to bands like fish, the Dave Matthews band and blues traveler. Yeah, this they got themselves scene, on the horror tour. Yeah, and that's what I was going to mention. This yep. whole scene was epitomized at the time by the traveling horde, H-O-R-D-E, Horizons of Rock Developing Everywhere Festival, which was basically a Lollapalooza for jam bands. The Black Crows signed up for the 1995 summer tour as the headline act. While it was successful, it backfired on them in the long run because it exposed them as a band that wasn't really good at being an improvisational jam band. Don't get me wrong, they were great musicians, but it takes something else to be able to capture and keep the audience's attention with improvisational music. Yeah, Virtuosos like Fish, for example, were seemingly able to invent new forms of music whenever they jammed. The Black Crows, on the other hand, while adept at their instruments, 
were pretty uninspired and plain whenever they ventured into improvisational territory. Their, their, their strength was this powerful, bombastic, blues soul R&B funk hybrid blaring in the background while Chris Robinson sang his guts out and pranced around the stage with all the charisma of a young Mick Jagger. By the time of Amorica, Robinson had become enamored of the Grateful Dead and seemed intent on reinventing the Black Crows in that style and image, with Robinson just being a static, stoic performer on stage, no longer a performer in capital letters. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I could see where that would come in. And remember, this is around the time that there's strain there. Uh, Robinson, by his own admission, is probably doing too many drugs. Uh, yeah. At this point, and you know him and Rich Robinson, they had a, a re relationship that was up and down because Rich Robinson was a teetotaler, and he was yep. he he was a pretty serious uh, guy, and so there were and they were just you know sibling rivalry is 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 going to end right. there. So they they seem to have lost a little bit of direction because by like you said by ninety five they're made they're a made band, and yeah. so one one way or another they're always going to have a built in uh, uh, fan base. And so, okay, now that we're made, where do we go from here? And so I think that there was some tension there. And and we'll talk about this right now, essentially, is they go from sounding effortless to putting in some effort to and, you know, still coming up with a great record. But you can tell that they're making an effort to try new things to now straining for something new or straining for. Yeah relevance is not the right word but straining for let's continue this you know we yeah. we, we, we need to be something else and yeah. what is that something else and they strain and as a result become remarkably inconsistent yeah well i mean interesting you say the uh, strained i'll get to that um first of all three snakes and one charm came out in the summer of 1996 and it right. continued the black crows slightly commercial decline peaking at number 15 on the Billboard album chart. That's great for most bands, but with the heights the Black Crows had scaled, it had to come as a bit of a disappointment. Now, the commercial decline paralleled, like you referenced, Chris, another increasing problem for the band, and it was the relationship between the Robinson brothers, which really started to erode during the making of Amorica and continued into the making of Three Snakes. Throw in drug problems by most of the members of the band, not just Chris Robinson, but like you know Mark Ford as well, all except Rich, like who you said was a teetotaler, and the band was becoming a toxic mess. Unlike Amorica, three now the making of Amorica was strained and labored. Three the, the making of Three Snakes and One Charm was not a labored, overproduced effort, but it sounded like it. Oh yeah, which is which is really weird. Um, they rented a house for all the band members to live in in order to build some camaraderie. The result was an album that, in my opinion, has actually aged quite well because of its adventurousness. I kind of like it. Um, there's a distinct Sly and the Family Stone feel to the record with the R&B soul elements of the Southern Harmony album coming to the forefront while being bolstered by never-before-heard horn arrangements. I like Blackberry. It was a single... It's indelible pop rock of the first order. In our curmudgeonly parallel universe, this would have replaced Dave Matthews in all those adult contemporary radio stations. Yeah, no Good shit. Friday. Good yeah. Friday is a gorgeous, blues-tinged, secular gospel ballad of mournful regret and is another should-have-been, could-have-been hit song. 
If you listen closely beyond the guitar-heavy crunch of Nebuchadnezzar, I kind of like that song. You will hear the closest the Black Crows ever came to the Beatles in regard to melody and song structure. Now, Chris, you and I actually saw the Black Crows when we were seniors at Syracuse University in the yes. fall of 1996. We saw them at the Landmark Theater in either September or October. Remember that? O October of 1996. Yep, I, yeah. I, I do remember that. And uh, uh, very, very good show. And uh, the only thing about that era of the band and, you know, they've talked about it in interviews. At that point, Mark Ford had gotten himself so strung out on heroin. Most nights they yeah. had to unplug him. Yeah. Because, you know, like uh, Rich Robinson has said, you know, there'd be nights where they're supposed to be playing Remedy and he's playing something completely, out, completely yeah. different. So, like, literally they had to unplug him. And so what I remember most about that show, like, like you said, uh, alluded to that, I just remember that the energy was great. Robinson was a really magnetic front man and, you know, kind of bouncing around doing his thing, but the jams themselves, it, it just kind of was, they were, it was uneven. It was like dull. Yeah. It, yeah. They weren't was, good at jamming. They were, that's not their strength. Yeah. It was messy. It, it was, yeah. a, it was a messy show. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, when you talk about three snakes, so you hit the nail on the head that it's an album that, it's one of the only they demoed the record. I mean, so in right. other words, they really worked on it and, you know, they had a, so the, the record is pretty much pre-made so that they could kind of, you know, have a laid back feel. And I guess the recording was a lot of fun and people enjoyed it because it was demoed, but you wouldn't know it because the record is so tense that I don't yeah. know. It, it's a, it's not a relaxed set of songs. It's not confident. Uh, and it, it's loud and it's tense and it's, it's a little uptight and the highlights, you know, many of which you mentioned, I'm also a big fan of bring on, bring on, which is very white album uh, era yeah. Beatles. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Blackberry's cheesy, uh, but I can see it's, it's a decent single. Uh, but, you know, Black Friday is the best song on the record. And that, that mm -hmm. song is really held up. And obviously it's still a staple of their shows even now. Yeah. Uh, but you know, but the stuff there's a, there's some cosmic slop on it too. And, yeah. uh, you know, the horns, eh, you know, the horns are a little bit horrific when they, when they show up, uh, the one sort of new touch that does work is the auto harp, uh, in a couple mm. of places, the, the auto harp or the blues harp shows up in a couple of songs, mo obviously most prominently on good Friday. Uh, so strange record. I said the good stuff you're right has aged well. The bad stuff has not aged well and has only gotten worse over time. And it makes me it's it, it's almost it's a lost opportunity record where it's yeah. you know, maybe they came up with something sonically interesting, but yeah. the songs just they they were just it was a muddy, muddy period for them. Yeah, it really was, you know, you know, drugs, arguments, decline in popularity, eh, poor black crows. But anyway. This classic period of the Black Crows ended when guitarist Mark Ford was fired and bassist Johnny Colt quit. Reinforcements joined the remaining core trio, the Robinson Brothers and drummer Steve Gorman, and just in time as Columbia Records bought out Deaf American and absorbed the Black Crows into the company's fold. The band went into the studio with producer Kevin Shirley to make a set of lean, mean, stripped-down, straightforward 
bare bone rock and roll songs that harken back to their classic debut album. And that they did. By Your Side was released in early 1999. And songs like Kicking My Heart Around and Go Faster roar out of the speakers like blues rock hurricanes. The Black Crows were masters at finding the nexus point where pop, soul, and gospel met. And the title track is a perfect example of that. It's a perfectly produced, skillfully written, expertly executed, timeless classic rock record. The one problem? It didn't sell. It peaked at only number 26 on the Billboard Albums chart. The tour for the album was very successful, though. They sold out theaters and uh, two to 3,000 capacity venues all over North America and even went on a summer amphitheater tour, co-headlining with Lenny Kravitz. The Black Crows maintained their core audience, but even they were resigned to the Crows being a legacy act at this point. Another thing to keep in mind, and this comes from Steve Gorman's memoir, the Black Crows during this period did two things to piss off the, the honchos at Columbia. Number one, uh, one of the top guys wanted the Black Crows to do a cover of the Rolling Stones' uh, It's Only Rock and Roll. And they, and they wanted to push that as a single. Um, the Black Crows just adamantly refused because they didn't want to be pigeonholed as a Rolling Stones wannabe band. So that pissed off the heads of Columbia. And number two... Remember that Bruce Willis movie that Errol Smith did the song for? What was it? Uh, Armageddon. Armageddon, right. They wanted the Black Crows to do a Diane Warren song. The Black Crows said, no, we're not doing a fucking Diane Warren song. So those are two two strikes against them. And the company just kind of took their support away from them after that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Them doing a cover of It's Only Rock and Roll. That sounds pretty good in my head. Yeah, but I can see why they wouldn't want to do that. They don't want to be pigeonholed as a Stones wannabe. Oh, oh, no they've, doubt. They've always they've always been compared to the Rolling Stones. Like, oh, come on, that's just predictable yeah. at that point. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was, and and you're right. I mean, the album didn't sell because they didn't promote it. I remember uh, I was work that was right as I was starting to work for SonicNet when that album was uh, being uh, yeah. was was being uh, pushed or not pushed. I just remember yeah. there was very very little effort that was made. Uh, and in a way for the band that was good because, you know, the, the true, the, the true blue fans, the, the faithful stayed with them. And it kind of was the beginning of the formation of the cult that has sustained them in the 20 years. Plus, you know, right. they've, they've got a reputation for being one of the best live bands, uh, in, in America, it, you know, despite their lack of jams, they're, they're so good and so soulful and such a good tight. Uh, band and like and there, there's a chemistry you know, even if the robinsons want to kill each other half the time there's a undeniable chemistry that those guys have right so you do get this as far as the record itself uh, i like it more uh I, I think it's a very good record and because at that point it was like fuck it let's just go back to doing what we do and let's just make a, a flat-out rock record let's not let's not reinvent the wheel here and so yeah. it, it very much is in the spirit of shake your money maker now i did see a quote that uh when after they left columbia and signed a v2 when they were promoting lions which we'll get to in a bit uh rich robinson said that the, you know the, the label really wanted us to just make another shake your money maker they just wanted us to just kind of go back and just do that again which 
as it turns out, is pretty much what they did <laughs> with, yeah. with with by your side. So it almost yeah. makes it sound like they didn't necessarily want to to do that, but it worked out because again, it's a very very strong record. And what I like about it is it's a consistent record too. I mean the the shortest song is three minutes and thirty six seconds. The longest song is like four minutes and forty six seconds. Yeah. And so everything is just it's the same. This you know length, structure, uh, tightness. Uh, Robinson's the only guitarist on it, so he plays yeah. all the guitar parts. Uh, so it's yeah. it's a very economical record. It's 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 in and out. It's boogie. It's woogie. It's rock. It's roll. Yeah, and yeah. uh, just really strong. I mean, kicking kicking your my heart around and uh, title track is really good too. That's a strong yeah. song. Yeah, uh, fire side. Yeah, absolutely. So so then you know they come off uh, of this whoa, whoa, whoa. the comeback i'm going to talk about the comeback oh there is the a comeback. Bit of a com- there is a comeback in yeah. october 1999 the black crows got together with jimmy page yes they to did do a series of shows in los angeles new york and worcester massachusetts they did mostly led zeppelin songs with some blues covers and a few black crows songs thrown in for good measure the shows all sold out and were extremely successful. And more importantly, they were critically successful. Music media was back on the Black Crows bandwagon, praising them for the terrific live band that they had always been. This led to a double live album put out on TVT Records in early 2000, with all the material taken from Page and the Crows' two-night stand at the 6,000-capacity Greek Theater the big, beautiful outdoor venue in Los Angeles. It sold all right, not great, but critics loved how the Black Crows, as a band, put a unique, soulful, southern fried spin on all those classic Led Zeppelin songs. Page and the Black Crows reunited for a very successful and lucrative summer amphitheater tour in 2000, with several dates supporting The Who. That must have been a hell of a show. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it, it seemed the only person who wasn't happy with the proceedings was Chris Robinson himself. In an interview at the time of the live albums released, he said, quote, I didn't really have that much fun doing it. It was all right. And Jimmy's a phenomenal guitarist. But to me, it was just a job. I'm not a big fan of Robert Plant's lyrics or his singing. So that part of me, that part of it was a little boring for me. End quote. Well, that's too bad, Chris. Well, well, which is weird because he's not doing a Robert Plant impression. He's singing those songs as Chris Robinson. Yeah. Uh, which and is, so which is why it works. Yeah. You know? And like like the version of Custard Pie is fan fucking tastic off live at the yeah. Greek uh, yeah. because Robinson's doing Robinson. And right. so, yeah. And, and, you know, Jimmy Page is obviously he's he's on on that record. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know, whoever recorded it, and mixed it, uh, did a fabulous, fabulous job. It's 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 a really strong live record. And I encourage everybody uh, listening to to go uh, to go seek it out on YouTube. Uh, you, you have to go to YouTube, but it's not on Spotify for whatever reason. But that's OK. I mean, you can find most everything you need anyway on YouTube and probably should. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, just you just 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 cause. But yeah, anyway. they, they did have that little bit of a comeback and yeah. uh and, and they were at least relevant for a short time. And, right. and, and 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 then they shot themselves in the foot. Right. The Black Crows joined Virgin Records and their first album for the label following the success of the Jimmy Page collaboration was Lions, 
released in the spring of 2001. It was both a commercial disappointment, only number 20 on the Billboard album chart, and a critical failure. And for once, the naysayers were right. It's a shit record through Hmm. and through. They were totally trying to capitalize on the page collaboration by going for a Zeppelinized sound, which is ironic considering how Chris Robinson went on record saying he wasn't a fan of the whole Zeppelin thing. More than that, the band sounds like they're mailing it in with some of Chris Robinson's most uninspired lyrics. It's a moribund bore and my candidate for worst Black Crows album ever. Chris? Yeah, which is really strange because in terms of sound, it might be their most well-produced record. They worked yeah. with Don Was. Uh, so yeah. Don Was actually produced uh, uh, this album. and But the thing is, is okay, that's fine. It, it sounds great, uh, but when you're really if when you're hinting at steven tyler uh, of aerosmith as opposed to you know mick jagger or robert plant or anything like that it's almost like toys in the attic is part of the inspiration for where he's at uh you know they they didn't like being pegged as a classic rock wannabe uh uh band well this album is a really strange way to make an argument against that because it's right on point as them being a classic rock aping band and uh otherwise known as extremely boring yeah. and so uh at, at this point even like three snakes and one charm might be like frustratingly uneven but it sure as shit ain't boring this record the best the best thing you can say about lions it's still better than greta van fleet yeah <laughs> well okay you know uh yeah nowhere to go but up baby nowhere to go but up uh, I, yeah. I, I i do like Lickin. I, I think Lickin is a good single uh that, that that's a that's a pretty good song but the rest of it yeah is a shit bomb and I, I personally you know part of it is is uh that was i think year one or year two of chris robinson's marriage to kate hudson so i think yeah. he, he he was in love with his hollywood starlet so yeah uh, when, when, when when you're inspired by your like you know like child of privileged muse uh yeah may, may, maybe you know the 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 angst and the the, the soul and the the uh the balls they yeah. kind of yeah they kind of take a vacation yeah the daughter of goldie hawn and kurt russell probably wasn't a good muse for chris robinson <laughs> true, true anyway enough. uh drummer steve gorman quit the band in 2002 mm-hmm. and that caused the band to go on hiatus it lasted for about three years when guitarist mark ford clean and sober and and keyboardist eddie harsh rejoined the robinson brothers and they toured throughout 2005, even opening for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on a summer tour. That hmm. must have been a fun show. Yeah, uh, seriously. Harsh and Ford left the band again in 2006. And from 06 to 07, the band was basically a revolving lineup behind the Robinson Brothers. They toured a lot uh, throughout those two years, especially making treks to Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. In 2008, the Black Crows released their seventh album, War Paint, on independent label Megaforce. Guitarist Luther Dickinson from the North Mississippi All-Stars had been a member of the Crows' touring band the previous couple of years and was now in the fold as a full-time member. More importantly, Steve Gorman was back behind the drum kit. War Paint was definitely an improvement on Lions, and fans rewarded it. When the album debuted at number five on the Billboard chart, the Black Crow's highest placing since the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion back in 1992. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the record. It's definitely better than its predecessor. And you start to hear the band branch out 
into country and folk music, something the Crows only hinted at in previous albums. I just don't think the songwriting is up to par yet. It will get much better later on, though. Chris? Yeah, uh, this album, it you're right, it is it is uneven, and it does hint at uh, some special things to come, but it has its own special moments. Uh, I think that you've got the song, Oh, oh Josephine, which, yeah. uh, by the way, it has 1,125,429 plays on Spotify, so it actually really? does, ha- yeah, it does have a little bit of a following on there, huh. uh, and uh, Evergreen. Uh, following it and i think both of those songs kind of show that uh luther dickinson was by far the best guitarist that was ever associated with the black rose mm. or ever or ever will be uh that that yeah. guy is a remarkably good uh lead guitar player in a blues and folk uh, and or folk construct uh, and so it's not without its its hits or whatever but what it does is it kind of shows them regaining their footing which they had right. lost what they they had lost after 1998 uh yeah that yeah they had struggled for a few years but still had some footing after 99 1998 they lost their footing and lost their way this is their coming back around and and, but like you said this is the warm-up act to what came next well they said well you know uh since we had so much fun making this record you know let's let's try you know we like experimenting Uh, you know levon helm has this little barn up yeah. in Woodstock, Woodstock, New York. What if we were right. to like uh, do the uh, the the Let It Be thing and like let's like, right. rehearse a whole bunch of new songs and play them for a small audience of people? Uh, wouldn't that be a good thing? Uh, well, here's what happened. Yeah. Yes. Here's what. Yeah. Here's what happened. Another move to another indie label. This time, Silver Arrow Records uh, brought about a new album, 2009's Before the Frost, Ellipses Until the Freeze. Like War Paint, it peaked at number five on the Billboard album chart. And that is one, this is one of the genuinely underrated and most brilliant gems in the Black Crow's entire discography. Like you alluded to, Chris, recorded live in front of a small audience in Levon Helm's studio in Woodstock, New York. For those who don't know, Levon Helm was the drummer and vocalist for the legendary band, The Band. And this album sharpens the country and folk leanings from the previous album with much, much improved songwriting. The album also sees the Crows dip their toes in disco with I Ain't Hiding, a gorgeous country balladry with Appaloosa and The Last Place That Love Lives, gloriously grungy blues with Kept My Soul and a Sly Stone-esque boogie with Make Glad. On CD, it was a single album, but if you downloaded it online, like I did, it would have been a double album, with the second disc being loaded with beautiful, folky Americana, some of it even drifting into bluegrass. The whole project really shows the Black Crows flowering and growing into the grizzled classic rock band they always wanted and had the goods to be. For me, it's easily their best album since the uh, the classic Southern Harmony album and one of their top three albums. Chris? Yeah, hard to believe it's actually, it basically is a live record because it's so yeah. tight and so soulful. Li- and live in the studio. So it counts yeah. as a studio album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, live in the studio. But the fact that they were able to just get things so tight and so soulful uh, like that, uh, you know, on, on first try is just kind right. of remarkable. Uh, one thing to point out about this record, you, you basically you and I in, in our notes have the same highlights, the same songs, but there's one additional one 
that I think is pretty remarkable. There's a cover of a song that Steve Stills uh, had on a record, Stephen Stills, uh, in 1973. It's a song called So Many Times, or Mm. So Many Times, that Stills co-wrote with Chris Hillman, with Chris Hillman singing the original song. Chris Um, Hillman, by the way, is the bass player from the Birds. Yeah, Yeah, from the Birds. And and so it just be, it's a it's a lovely lovely little song a mandolin driven song. Uh, mm. The Black Crows version is a million times better, uh, wow. which is which is saying something. Uh, the uh, the mandolin playing by Dickinson is marvelous. The uh, the harmony vocals are on point, and there's just a, a it's slowed down just enough to have like a Black Crows magic to it right it's just sort of singularly uh their own and so it's just kind of a neat touch that you know through this 20 year uh studio album uh journey that we've gone on that they end up in a place that's just about as strong as where they started in terms of inspiration in terms of tightness in terms of just the talent and the the sense of mission that's what this record has that they hadn't had it as strong uh, since Southern Harmony Musical compa- uh, Companion is mission, mission mm. and purpose and focus, right. and yeah. this this album has it in spades. It's it's a beautiful beautiful record. Uh, like you, like you said, double record. Uh, it's what about eighty minutes long or something like that. But it's it's uh, actually an hour forty minutes. So it's yeah. it's a, it's a long ass record. But yeah. it's it's worth the investment. Uh, I was I was saying to Arturo before we recorded that I've probably only listened to this album four times, and yeah. uh, all four times I've heard it, I've said, you know, I really should spend more times with it uh, with it. And by that, what I mean is I've, I've had four streaks where I've been exploring it. But yeah. it's it's something that you would think would be more in my regular rotation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> n- n- now's your chance to do it. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> And, yeah. and everyone else's. So I, yeah. I, I get to play our audience. I, I am our customer persona for this uh, for this here episode. Yeah. Uh, long live the Black Crows, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, let's, let's wrap up the story of this remarkable band. In 2010, the Black Crows embarked on a massive North American tour that they promoted as their farewell tour called, quote, Say Goodnight to the Bad Guys. It featured one 90-minute acoustic set and one 90-minute electric set. It really wasn't their farewell tour, though. In mm. summer of 2011, they played throughout Europe and even brought Jimmy Page back for a show in Amsterdam. In 2013, they did both a UK and US tour. Chris and Rich were at it again, though, uh, disputing the ownership of the band. And in 2015, Rich Robinson announced the Black Crow's final breakup. This detent lasted only four years. The brothers announced in 2019 that they had resolved their differences and planned a summer tour in 2020 with a brand new band of Black Crows celebrating the 30th anniversary of Shake Your Moneymaker, where they would play the whole album in its entirety. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic put a kaboosh on those plans and they had to postpone the tour for 2021. Last year, the band put out an EP called 1972. Which is where fun. The Black, the Black Crows covered songs that they liked from that year, including Moon Age Daydream by David Bowie, Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations, The Slider by T-Rex, You Wear It Well by Rod Stewart, 
Rocks Off by the Rolling Stones, and Easy to Slip by Little Feet. Interesting. Yeah, that that's a that's a really a really great selection of songs, and you yeah. know, and and I had never really thought I in my mind of association of putting Little Feet and uh, the Black Crows in the same yeah in in the same vein, but right. wow, they proved that they actually can be in the same vein as Little George. Uh, yeah, so that is a that is a fun EP worth checking out, and that is on all the all of the streaming sites, and so yeah. Yeah, and so that's kind of their latest, greatest, uh, their their latest volley of relevance. And right. uh, yeah, they talked about in that uh, that San Diego Union Tribune article that I quoted at the top of the show in twenty two that it was actually their kids that kind of le- uh, uh, led to the peace uh, treaty because the kids were like, you know, why do you guys not like each other so much? And wh- wh- is there a good reason we don't know our cousins that well? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of shamed them into saying, you know, they have a point. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's it yeah. is kind of, it is kind of stupid, you know. So it's almost like, yeah. hey, we done growing up in our fifties. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of where they're at, you yeah. know. So Chris, the Black Crow, what would you say is their legacy? I think their legacy is they took a strain of Southern rock and extended it and found even greater depths uh to it and they did it uh in an era that was saturated with with media and with music television and they did it for a a new generation so in in other words they took the glory and the magic of 1970s rock and they uh were able to gift it to a new generation of rock and roll fans i.e guys you know people our age yeah and and kind of extend that flame and and keep that alive they they were basically Although there, there, there are there are some younger generation people or you you you'll yes. be surprised into this kind of music as well yeah it it, it it's it's coming back I, I well to to me southern rock i mean the almond the almonds and skinner and all that, that stuff will never die i mean that's i love i love southern rock and i it's 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 my stuff uh yeah. i i hear southern rock and almost everything i southern rock defines me but but their legacy is that they kept that going and they extended it and they uh, proved that that rock and roll matters and will always matter, even in the face of forces that would suggest that it wouldn't matter. And they were right. able to pull that off again. They came out in the same year that was dominated by MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. Yeah. You know, and New Kids on the Block. Yeah. And, and they and Warrant. And they were able to be successful with an anachronism. Right. So, you know, it's, you know, back to the future, basically what this band pulled off. And so I think that's their legacy. Their other legacy is as a cult live band. And that part of the rock and roll experience is the actual experience of rock and roll. And I I think that they are one of the more magical uh, bands of capturing that lightning in a bottle during shows and mm. uh they're they're the type of band that they get it right on the first take every time mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. They're, yeah. they're just they're just that kind of band and so that's a legacy uh, a legacy too is e- extending the cult uh, uh you know not only extending the sound and the, and the and the soul and the heart but extending the cult right is that fair yeah. so how how, how, totally. how how would you term the legacy exactly how you would as you put it yeah that 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 they kept the flame of classic rock and even Southern rock alive for 
their generation and for even younger generations. And, and uh, yeah, as a live band, as, as, as keeping uh, you know, Southern rock as a live experience, when they stop trying to be a jam band and just be a fucking great rock and roll band, well rehearsed, forget yeah. about the improvisations. Well, there you go. And it, isn't it nice to know that you have synergy among uh, yours truly curmudgeons uh, as always. So yeah, no, this has been a fun episode. Uh, I, you know, the thing about our podcast is, is it keeps us in uh, inspiration in that, yeah. you know, to, to go from to, uh, a month full of James Brown to now segueing to the Crows after having been in REM. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's been, this is uh, talk about purpose. The purpose of the curmudgeon rock report is to keep you in the best music ever made. That yeah. is that that's what we're here to. We celebrate the best music we ever made. We we relive it and relive it and relive it and relive it. And we bring it out here for you, that iconoclastic, uh, iconoclastic rock geek that uh, whose spirit will never die. And we 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 are your champions, uh, folks, uh, for stuff like this and more mirth and merriment. You can always join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, it's always lively up there. Arturo is a list. He's in list mania mode these days. And 1974 so, is coming soon. 1974 coming soon to a Facebook near you. Uh, join us at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, if you have anything to say about this episode, if you think we're full of it, if you think that uh, King Gizzard is the best band ever or the worst band ever, let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And, hey, we may just respond. And uh, we're still on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's weird. Uh, if you have a blue check, chances are you're probably not wouldn't dig our show. And so we take pride not having a blue check. Uh, well, pretty soon we may, we may have to go to threads because I think that's going to blow Twitter away. Yeah, it, 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 pro it probably could. So, so we might end up having to wear some nicer threads. And, and get yeah. away from Twitter, which has become like a, to a toxic Nazi shithole. Uh, yeah. But we are still on there for the time being. And then, uh, yeah, once in a while, we still do make st uh, Spotify playlists. We'll, we'll make one on this, too. Uh, I'm still working on a James Brown one. So uh, how, how, how at you, boy? We're, we're about to get there with that. 